Welcome back, everybody, to From Complex to Queens, Mason Avenue's Minor League Podcast. I'm Steve Saipa, and I'm joined by Lucas Laos and Ken Lavin. How you guys doing? Good, good. All right. All right, so we'll start off with some Promote Extend Trade. And you know how I like to go on these random, random things. Um, oh, boy, here we go again. Nah, nah, this one is more a little more straightforward than last week, I guess. But on this date in 312... And sometime in the evening, um, Constantine had a army of about twenty to 25,000 men camped on the shores of the Tiber. And he had a dream where he was told to put the, the Latin cross on the shields of his uh, men. And then the next day, he'd go on to win the battle against his rival, Maxentius. And he became the new emperor of Rome. And he made Christianity the state religion. And obviously, that would change the course of history. So, of these three players who've made their Christian religion known, and they've spoken about it, their faith and everything, who are we going to promote, extend, and trade? And I wanted to keep it as even and fair as possible, and I guess I was pretty lucky, because I had three Hall of Fame uh, players here, and they're all catchers, so go figure. Um, no Tebow. Damn. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess they're all, uh, you know... Uh, almost all of them played in the same era too, but so we have Mike Piazza, we have Yogi Berra, and we have Roy Campanella. Uh, We're gonna promote, extend, and trade. That's a tough one. I mm-hmm. mean, the extend is easy. Piazza, is it though? Uh, I'm extending Piazza. I'll probably do the same. But it's a Met podcast. Like, what, what are we doing if we're not extending Piazza? Um. Uh, the other two, yeah, that's tough. Flip a coin, or I guess like a thematically appropriate wafer. <laughs> I, I don't have a tough one either way. Where do they rank in terms of catcher war? Are they like uh, they're only well, what twelve catchers in the Hall of Fame, something like that. Campanella had a very short career. Uh, yeah. Was that dude? I don't. I don't remember if that's injury related or something else. Yeah, he uh, became a parapl- He became a quadriplegic. Right. 1958. He was driving back home in like the winter and got into a car accident and was basically retired because he could no longer walk. That's a shame. Yep. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I guess I'll trade him then, just for the. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But I guess yeah, it's kind of business. <laughs> it's um interesting. I'm I'm looking at Fangraphs and like, Campanella had the two best seasons by F4, uh, 1951 7.1 uh, mm-hmm. wins above replacement, and uh, 1953 7.7. But Barra had like a legit decade in which he was above five wins every year. Yeah, that's so, tough to pull off. Yeah. I uh, also think five wins is, like, above the threshold of accumulator status for me. Like, if you're the kind of guy who gives, like, 15 years of three to four wins, then you are you fall into that accumulator bucket, and I don't care as much. But if you have a decade of five wins or more, that's pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Piazza also basically did that. <laughs> yeah, I mean... From 1995 to uh, 2000. 
And Piazza is still the best hitting catcher of all time, right? I don't think anyone's surpassed him. No. Yankees fan in before the Yankees fans say uh, Gary Sanchez or something like ridiculous Ray like that. Pisada. Oh jeez. He's he's the best hitter of that group. He's mm-hmm. uh 140 WRC plus career hitter. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess extend Piazza. It's really kind of a coin flip between the two. Uh but I I guess I'd go consistency over Campanella also had two um like slightly above replacement level seasons in 56 and 57. So mm. I guess I'll go with Barra for promote. Yep. I, I agree with that. I did the opposite. I did Piazza. We're going to extend and then Campanella. We're going to promote and then Barra trade. But I mean, you have three hall of fame guys. Yeah. You really can't go wrong with any of this. Basically Campanella had half of Yogi Barra's career through no fault of his own. Yeah. So maybe let's get him a chauffeur. He did have one. He had a servant that basically, well, not servant. That that sounds terrible, but uh, a nurse, I guess, that had to basically do everything for him, dress him, feed him. Oh no, I meant before the fact. When you're when we're trading him away, we include a chauffeur in the package, so the accident never happens happens in the first place. Ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I was gonna say like that was pretty harsh, but yeah. no, no, okay. no. I'm trying to I'm trying to prevent the tragedy, <laughs> not rub salt in the wound. Come on. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's shift over now to the AFL updates, and the AFL is now officially over. Um, they played their championship game on Saturday night. The Salt River Rafters they beat the surprise Sagaros five to one. Uh, Marlins outfield prospect Gerard Encarnacion, he did most of the damage with a fourth inning grand slam. And the Scottsdale Scorpions ended up going 12 and 17 on the year. And they ended the AFL season on a bad note, I guess. They had a four, uh, excuse me, a six game losing streak. So that's no good. But on the positive side, uh, Andres Jimenez, he kept hitting even though the team wasn't. And he ended up winning the AFL batting title. He hit uh, 371 in 18 games. Damn. And he had five doubles, two triples, and two homers in his 70 AFL at-bats. And like we've been saying, you know, since since the beginning here, the environment is obviously conducive to offense. And it's a small sample size, but you want to see, you know, that kind of production as opposed to lesser production. It's it's good performance beats bad performance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he in, in he was interviewed after winning, and he said that quote my approach at the plate is basically keep it simple. I tried to hit the ball the other way and use all fields. I enjoyed every moment with my teammates and enjoyed the game. I had fun every time, and God, it's a good like thing. The most bland response possible. It is, it is. But it's a good. <laughs> it, it's good to hear him saying that. You know, he was. Going opposite field, using all the field. Not trying to stomp and just hit taters. Right. He wasn't really trying to pull it and and go for the homer because, as we know, that's kind of what the Mets were training him to do or, or whatever the word would be. Having his – altering his mechanics to be more uppercutty with the swing. And we got – as we spoke about a few times, we've gotten firsthand reports from John Troopin – who's at the AFL in Arizona, that Jimenez's swing is not as 
um, lofty as it was, and it was kind of a fusion, a hybrid of, you know, his, his prior batting, uh, mechanics, which were much more planar and his, you know, more exaggerated uppercutty swing. And, you know, that, that is a good thing to see, a good thing to hear because Jimenez is, you know, never going to be a slugger. He's a, had a, an above average hit tool though. Why are you breaking, you know, don't, you don't need to fix what ain't broken. And he's never going to be, you know, maybe, maybe a 10 to 15 home run guy at peak given his size and, and body and everything like that. So it, it's good that he's going back to a, a, the more simple approach that he had before, uh, beforehand. And it'll be interesting to see if he, when he returns to the Mets, um, in next season, either in Binghamton or or in Syracuse, more likely Syracuse. I would how, hope Syracuse. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how uh, how he swings if he if the Mets coaches have him return to the more uppercutty swing or if he keeps the one that he's been he was using in the AFL. I was looking at his numbers during the season, and really only one stretch of the 2019 season in a, in a similar sample, which is about 70 at-bats, did Jimenez have as many extra base hits from basically from, what was it, April 1st to like April 20th or, or whatever it was. He had basically the same amount of extra base hits, four doubles, two triples, and two homers. Mm-hmm. But the batting average was like 250 as opposed to this was just 370. Um, obviously, bat dip and the environment is, is in play there, but... Even if you you subtract you know a hundred points from that, and you say that he was more representative of two seventy hitter, obviously a two seventy is much better than a two fifty five. So, sure. What's the um? How does the coaching work down in the AFL? Because it's like a mix of a bunch of teams. So is there just one hitting coach and like? Yeah, he was a guy from Toronto, and I'm I don't have his name in front of me, but I know it's like Saint Saint something, Sand something. Well, do they have like do do they have a lot of input, or do they just kind of sit back and? Cause I, I imagine some teams might be a little ticked off if some other teams' coaches are talking to their prospects or whatever. But I also wonder if, since he seems to have reverted his approach a little bit, I wonder if some of the staff down there said something to him, or if this was something the Mets implemented before the end of the season, or if he did it on his own, or what what exactly happened. I'm sure that the major league clubs have the ultimate. Uh, say in, in matters, but I mean, they're not there every single day, right. every single game. So if he sees something that, you know, he thinks could help, you know, he, he says something and, and if Jimenez listens or not, whatever, or if the Mets tell him, don't listen to anybody, I don't know, but. Be interesting to see how he, what, what he's doing approach wise at the start of next season. Yeah, that's, it'll be. Like I was saying, it'll be telling because it was, you know, a good swing that kind of got, not ruined, but it was a good swing that kind of got unnecessarily tampered with. And hopefully, you know, whatever he learned in the AFL here, he can convince the Mets people to allow him to keep doing. Ken, were you the one who asked in the Slack if if people would trade him? Huh? Did you ask in the Slack if someone would tra- if we trade Jimenez, or was that someone else? I don't remember. No, I, I think I phrased it as like, who are the guys who would be upset to see go? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I don't know if any of us answered him as, as much as I like love him, you know? Yeah. Uh, if they keep trying to get him to uppercut, it's not going to happen. So. No. They have no coach, idea what they trade him for, but. The hitting coach, um, is, his name is Danny San Sebastian from the Atlanta Braves organization. Mm. Yeah, so hopefully. Well, do we know what affiliate he was working with? Uh, presumably he's seen like all their good prospects, Acuna, Albies, Waters, Pache, so he might have had some good input. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, Jimenez is a premium talent to begin with, so. Yeah. I mean, uh, the other hitters that the Mets sent didn't really benefit too much. There's actually one kind of little bit of a surprise, but. Um, Louis Carpio, he played in nine games and he ended up hitting 188, 278, 250. Not good. Um, Patrick Mazaika, he played in 13 games. He ended up hitting 174, 208, 239. Not good. Yikes. Ali Sanchez, he played in 14 games and he hit 262, 347, 310. So that, that that's an yeah. extremely Ali Sanchez line. Yep. yep. No power. Getting on base, solid base. average, yep. uh, almost a one-to-one walk-to-strikeout ratio, six walks, eight strikeouts. Mm, one of the uh, things that we were looking for when we were talking about what we wanted to see was a little bit more power from Sanchez. Uh, didn't didn't see that, but he was walking at a solid rate, you know. So it's still almost uh you know a six fifty OPS, which is Fine when you take into account he's a very good defensive catcher. Who is that speedy catcher the Mets had in like the early 2010s who like did the same thing, just walked a lot, never hit for any power? Cancel or something like that? I don't know why that thought just came to mind. Robinson Cancel, probably not him. He got a lot of time in the majors and AAA. That's, that's not who I'm thinking of then. Anyway. Mm. Don't I think the problem with guys like this is like they get a level higher and people are just going to start pumping fastballs down the middle and they can't do anything with it. Got to be able to protect the zone for the on-base skills to play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Sanchez will probably have his ticket um, stamped for AAA next year. So he'll get – it's a possibility he makes the major league roster. Who would you rather have, Tomas Nito or Ali Sanchez as the guy that, you know, Little bit more than backup catcher. Guy that'll be getting maybe 33% of the time, whatever Nito. it is. Nito. Nito. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, um, Nito's got a little more pop, and I'm not confident that, uh, Sanchez's hit tool is all that much better. That's a frightening concept, though. <laughs> that, like, I- I'm usually of the mind that backup catcher doesn't matter that much, but that's, that's scary. I have a soft spot for Ali Sanchez. I don't know why specifically. I think it is just like I I, I thought that he could do better, so I've always been rooting for him. You know, mm-hmm. it was just he he had a solid debut, I think, in like Kingsport a few years ago, and I was just like, wow, this guy might become something. And he never, you know, did. But I was always kind of rooting for him, so I have a soft spot for him, and I don't know if he can maintain in AAA a very high. Um, walk rate. I I think I would prefer him to Nito because just Nito is just such a, a black hole in every regard. 
offensively. And if Sanchez shows, you know, we know that he doesn't really have any power. I don't think he's ever going to manifest anything. But if he if he shows that he can draw walks, like I don't know, that's at least he's contributing. He's contributing something when he's at the plate. I just don't have any. I mean, I think I think that skill is high. I'm highly skeptical that that skill translates to the majors. Yeah. Given the total lack of power. Yeah. Because like mean, guys with better control and a better fastball will have well, literally nothing to so, fear. Yeah. yeah. And then it's it's up to him to. You know, just sign Rene Rivera for the league minimum instead, please. Uh, on the pitching side, things are a little bit better than uh, the hitting side uh, overall. Anyway, uh, Riley Gilliam he ended up pitching in seven games, and he posted a zero nine six ERA in nine point one innings, walking two and allowing excuse me and striking out eleven. Jordan Humphreys he pitched in four games. And he ended up posting a 0.77 ERA in 11.2 innings, walking four and striking out eight. David Peterson, he made four starts and he posted a 3.46 ERA in 13 innings. He allowed eight walks and struck out 13. And Blake Taylor appeared in nine games and he posted a 2.00 ERA in nine innings, walking two and striking out 11. Overall, it wasn't a particularly exciting bunch of pitchers that the Mets sent, but I would say that we're all confidently pleased in what Humphreys did, and we're all a little down on what Peterson did. Mm-hmm. Was Peterson the one who had the one like really disastrous start, and then the other three were okay? Or? Yeah, um, Peterson had a start. He gave up like five or six in runs in either two or three innings, which mm-hmm. is not optimal. Um, but m- more so, also, he was just was very hittable. He allowed 18 hits in 13 innings, and he walked eight guys, which is a little excessive. It's a lot of base runners. Yeah. 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 And he's not a guy that has flashy stuff where you could afford to be, you know, getting guys on base because, okay, you know, I, I gave up. A walk and a single, there's two men on, I'll just strike the next couple of guys out. Like, he doesn't really have that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, maybe the, the desert environment kind of, uh, what's the word? You know, it, it made his stuff a little less sharp, possibly, but, I mean, it's not an excuse either because, you know, he's going to be pitching in, in AAA next year. Um, and, you, you know, you want to see more. His Sounds season, extremely Jason Vargasy. Yeah, his season this year in Binghamton was not that great, um, stat-wise. The reports, stuff-wise, you know, nothing has really changed particularly much from when he was drafted, and this stuff is never too flashy to begin with, so. Not saying he's a bust, obviously that would be stupid, but if anyone is expecting David Peterson to be, uh, you know, any kind of pitching savior next season, probably not going to be the case. But he's still, you know, he's 24, I think. He's he's still very youngish. You know, all hope is not lost. He's a guy who's like a significant upgrade over Chris Flexen. Yeah. You know, uh, not somebody who they should be penciling into a, a rotation spot. I don't, I don't, like, he'll probably, he's probably what, like the... 
seventh or eighth starter going into next season, I I'm I have no problem with him in that role. Yeah. Yeah. Is he above right. or below Harold on the depth chart? I don't know. I think he would be above just by virtue of his name and draft pedigree and everything. Mm. But I think that Gonzalez is definitely more ready. Um, you know, he pitched I would think in AAA that, and, and yeah. had decent results. I, w- I would think that Gonzalez might get the first shot uh, yeah. just because of timing and everything with uh, Peterson having spent all year in AA. Yeah, so. that was my thought as well. And it's questionable who has the better stuff right now just because, you know, Harold's a guy that, that, you know, is smoke and mirrors and not deception, but, you know, kind of good control and junk. Whereas Peterson, he has more of a a fastball, more of a change, more of a a slider. But I don't know. Sometimes, like we were saying, Peterson stuff, nothing is that flashy or great. And sometimes just the combination of all the junk adds up. But I don't know. Hopefully we don't need to even worry or consider all this because the Mets make some good moves and signings and there isn't a weakness in the rotation. That would be that would be nice. I get ready for fifth starter Walker Lockett. Yeah, most likely. Um anything else in the AFL? Humphreys, you know, eleven innings, good to see. Command is a little rusty, but hey, you know. Get off fine. the field healthy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Gilliam looks, has a nice stat line, but meh, it's still just a reliever. Yeah, I, I liked him as a reliever going to the year, but um, not as high on him anymore. Having seen him stuff, it's just I don't think it's like major league caliber. But we'll see, I guess. He's if if there's ever a need to fortify the bullpen, he would probably be one of the first guys to get yeah, called. He'll probably be in the churn next year. Which again, fine. We got no problem with that. Just uh, as long as as long as there are additions made so that he's not in the opening day bullpen. Yep. <laughs> Alright, well uh, let's take a break here. And when we get back, we will talk about the Columbia Fireflies. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Steve Saipa. I'm joined by Lucas and Ken. And coming into the year, I think that we all thought that the Columbia Fireflies were going to be the Mets minor league team of 2019. Um, Almost half of our 2019 top 10 prospect list was on that team. Uh, You had number three, Mark Vientos, you had number five, Ronnie Mauricio, number six, Shervian Newton, number eight, Thomas Zipaki, not technically in the top ten, but number twelve, Simeon Woodridge, close enough. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to them, there's a bunch of like intriguing players that were 
kind of on the cusp of making the list. Guys like Bryce Hutchinson, Christian James, Juan Uriarte, some other guys. And managing all of them was going to be Pedro Lopez, who had a reputation for being a generally good manager in, term, in terms of player development and, and in-game strategy. And we all thought that the Cola Flies going to be like a super team, and they were just going to steamroll through the San Atlantic League. And that did not happen. Uh, the team got off to a slow start, and really at no point in the, either the first or the second half did they have like a, a sustained run of success. Um, they didn't post a record above 500 for the entire season. That's how thing. That's how bad things were. And for the most part, everybody struggled. Um, Mark Vientos, he ended up hitting 255, 300, 411, which isn't terrible, but it's not great either, um, especially for a guy with the pedigree and upside as Vientos. Newton, he hit 209, 283, 330, which is just very bad. Um, Oriarte hit 200, 238, 297, bad. Christian James, he posted a 507 ERA, bad. Um, Hutchinson, he posted a 373 ERA, which is solid, but it just kind of feels like because of the way that he was used as a reliever and then a piggyback guy, he didn't really pick up too much traction. So, you know, eh, it was just a down year for everybody and everything in Columbia. And honestly, I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. I thought that the guys that were rostered would be up to the challenge and no. Short of short of like all of them getting hurt, this was as bad as about as bad as the season could have gone. Yeah, I mean we'll we'll get to the exceptions in a in a minute, but really there's nothing no positive takeaways really. I mean maybe you could say that Hutchinson he got some innings under his belt. Um, Colin Holderman, who has pretty good stuff before his injury, um, you know, that he, he got back on the field and was getting some innings. But outside of things like that, like little victories, there's really nothing to rest your head on here because just even when if you, even if you take away expectations, which were high, just the numbers themselves for these players were just not too good. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody with a name that like Holderman? You're really rooting for that guy to become a setup reliever or something? <laughs> I mean, he could. Was there anybody in particular that you guys thought would would do better that did do uh, poorly? I mean, the main ones are really are you know Vientos, Newton, um. I mean, it's, I'm, this, there is, I guess, this was a team where you had a, a couple of marquee names and then not trash, but there was a lot of filler there too. That, that really can't pick up the, uh, the additional weight that these guys weren't able to carry. I was really hoping for more from Newton. I thought we'd see him do some fun stuff. Um, yeah, I thought, um, he was probably going to strike out a lot, but also yeah, he definitely might, did that. Yes, also yes, might do some other things. Um, I thought he'd at least hit for a little bit of power. Um, but no. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the South Atlantic League is a little bit favorable for pitchers, and Segra Park is a little bit favorable for pitchers, but he just kind of 
fell off the map in term in in terms of the uh power of production there. I was a little disappointed in in Vientos. I mean, not a little, <laughs> but I was upset that Vientos did as poorly as he did because I was very high on him coming into the season. I was comparing him to Nolan Gorman. You know, they both were, I think, tied last year in, in homers in the uh, Appalachian League and very similar profiles. And, and you know, if, if Gorman can be considered such a highly ranked guy, then so could Newton. Uh, excuse me, so could Vientos. But it just was not uh, to be, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, Vientos, uh, I don't think there's, Newton, I think we at least had like a high, knew he was a higher risk guy. Vientos, objectively, is probably the most disappointing. Yeah. He did pick it up a little bit in the second half, the last couple of weeks of the season, but just overall, it was back to the drawing board. I mean, the report you gave us on his swing was just so underwhelming. Yeah, um, not good. Just very big hole um, down and away. Like, he was just swinging at everything. And uh, hopefully somebody works with him and, and fixes that because not something you want to see from arguably your best position player or certainly your most advanced position player prospect. Um, but some, well, what the hell am I saying? Uh, outside of Ronnie Mauricio, your most advanced and best hitting prospect. Mm -hmm. Because, um, Ronnie Mauricio, he was another guy in that team and he had a, a pretty solid year. Um, all in all, the stat nine might not pop out at you. He hit 268, 307. 357, which is a 93 RC plus. But I think that it's a long year and he kind of slowed down in the second half big time. In the first half, he hit 290. In the second half, he hit 240. So I think just by virtue of him being a younger guy, he's never played a full season before. He's kind of barely him. played like a half, a short season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's barely played baseball, period. Yeah, he was in the complex for most of last year. But he very clearly tired. But, I mean, there's, you know, 93 RC plus as, as a guy as young as him. It's a win. Um, it was, it was almost league average, which would have been great and, you know, a few points away from being even above average, so, which would have been amazing, but, the the kid he just really oozes potential and you know next year he'll be assigned to, to St. Lucie Mets um he might be able to put on a little weight he's still kind of a a skinny guy so that would help with the stamina it would help with the power numbers but overall you know there's a, there's a lot to like from the season that he had but he was really the only hitter that you know, had a good year. Um, you can make the case Hansel Moreno also had a good year, but he was only with Columbia for like a month and a half or so. But outside of, you know, Mauricio, that was really about it. On the pitching side, there were uh, a pair of good years, most notably Simeon Woods Richardson, 18-year-old. Um, Again, same thing like Mauricio, a very young person. 
and put up excellent numbers. The ERA was a little high, you know, 425, but it's whatever. Um, he struck out almost 100 uh, batters in 78.1 innings. He struck out 97. So when you're a young guy and you're fooling guys that in some cases are like three, four, five years older than him, guys that, you know, were in college and are now – 22, 23 in, in the Sally, you know, you've got good stuff. Obviously, it doesn't really matter anymore because the Mets traded him to uh, Toronto for Marcus Stroman, which is still a trade that I would do, you know, yeah, easily. nine times out of ten. But yeah, it is. It was a game for the Mets organization as a whole, but definitely a hit for the Mets minor league. Um, health or or exciting exciteness whatever you want to call it because he was uh a fun player and obviously had success and good numbers and everything and then another guy that had a pretty solid season was Tommy Zapucky and coming back from Tommy John and everything his innings were very carefully managed didn't really throw more than Four, I think, or five innings in per outing max for the entire year, and that includes when he got promoted to St. Lucie and Binghamton. But it was good to see him back on the field. The fastball, you know, at the beginning of the year in April, we got some pretty bad reports. It was just kind of scraping by at 90. Uh, when I saw him later in the year in June, he was hitting 92, 93, 94. That's, you know, what you kind of want to see. Um, Where do you start him next the, year? Well, he he just barely made it to Binghamton, so I think that he he should stay in Binghamton. He I needs agree. to uh, be added to the forty men roster this year, and I think that the Mets have to because there definitely is the possibility of some other team snatching him up in the Rule Five draft. Oh yeah, yeah. he's like the prototypical. Rule five lefty that gets left in a bullpen for a whole yeah, season can, by like you can hide him if yeah. you want to. the Padres or something. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. it, it, the strikeouts were still there. Like it, it, he might be something still. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the stuff is as good and flashy it was before surgery, but he's definitely there's still a lot left in the tank. It's not. Situation like Marcos Molina, where he came back and he was able to post okay numbers, but if you saw him, just everything looked flat. Um, you know, Spucky is able to post solid numbers, and the stuff is a little rusty, which is fine as a guy who has been out of off the field for like year plus, almost two. But you know, that's that's you work the rust off, and he was doing that. And I think that we should still be uh, excited about him going forward. I I also think he should just be a reliever. I don't think they should waste any more time with him as a starter, honestly. Yeah, there are pro there there are pros and cons to that. I think that he probably is better off as a reliever, and you should just accept the inevitable now and and you know have him transition, but. He hasn't proved himself to be incapable of starting, so let him go as far as you can. 
I, you know, both, both arguments have some wisdom to them. I, I think you just have to recognize that he has a, he has a limited number of, uh, rounds in the chamber for lack of a better analogy there. And the sooner you get him ready for the major leagues, uh, with a healthier arm, the better. So yeah, for me, I think that's what sways the argument is he still can start. Sure. But the ultimate goal is major leagues. And I think with his being a left-hander, his, you know, excellent, well, they were rusty this year, but his really good, uh, but slightly limited secondary stuff and having to be added to the 40 man now and everything. I think that you should just expedite it and just have him transition because he could arguably make his major league debut in 2020. As, as more, and he would be more effective if he was making his debut as a reliever than as a starter. Yeah. And I think that's what his ultimate, I think that's what his ultimate, um, ending is here. I think that he will be a reliever, so you might as well just. I mean, realistically, if you want him to be a starter, he needs another season and a half or two years of development. Yeah, he, right now he doesn't have the the stamina um, pitch. Very not few innings, but like we were saying, very managed workload. Even if you gave, even if you took the gloves off completely and you gave allowed him to throw a considerably larger number of innings, he would just barely be at or above a hundred innings, which is still not that much. And it's just yeah. I'll be interested to see what he looks like when he comes back next year. Um, I don't know. Anthony Kay was a similar type dude. Tommy John missed a lot of time. Uh, had more of a workload when he first came back, but the stuff really popped uh, a second year past TJ. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Hopefully that happens with Sapaki. <laughs> Yeah, but it, I mean, it's still it's it's just nice to that we're at least his name is still in the conversation. It's yeah. not like Marcos Molina where he just cratered completely. And I think that I, I don't think that it would be going out on a limb to be to to even say that they did have similar star power, similar great stuff, whatever you want to say. Sapucky and Molina, they're kind of left-handed, right-handed mirrors of each other, young guys. Molina's mechanics are probably worse. Yeah, I mean, Zipaki's mechanics are not the best, but Molina's were kind of, what was the word with Lowry? A kinetic chain catastrophe? It was, like, (laughs) painful to look at. Yeah. really bad. But they were both, you know, extremely gifted pitchers, young, and then had, you know, the Tommy John problems and everything, and... That's when their careers diverged because Molina's out of baseball. Um, don't think he's pitching anywhere. Whereas the Puckies still in the organization. He's reached double A now and he's, I feel weird saying that he is still one of our top 10 prospects just based on the amount of innings that he threw and how I know that his stuff is diminished and it's not, you know, up to what it was. But I guess he is still a, a top ten prospect in the system. Yeah, probably. Um, he's he's gonna have a big league future. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Steve Seifer. And once again, like a couple of weeks ago, I am joined by my brother, Michael. How's it going, Mike? Uh, How you doing, bro? Good, good. So um, we didn't get a chance to talk about Kingsport a few weeks ago, but you accompanied me down there. And you were with me for quite a few ball games at MCU Park in Brooklyn with the Cyclones. And this year, when I went down to Columbia, South Carolina, to see the uh, Fireflies, you accompanied me once again, <laughs> my baseball yeah. buddy. Yeah, man. I mean, shoot, you don't always get an excuse to travel the country, so uh, I'll take it. Yep. <laughs> Anytime. So, overall, I, I have uh, positive things to say about Columbia, but let's start, I guess, at the beginning, getting there. For anybody who's never taken, let's say, a six-plus-hour, I guess, train ride, <laughs> Easy. It, is, it is quite an experience. Oh, man. The Amtrak was – it was either 12 or 13 hours to get there. Oh, God. It felt like a whole day. Yeah, well, it, it basically was. I mean, oh. after, let's say, four hours or so, you kind of start to get antsy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is that we're just waiting. The anticipation of getting on the train and knowing you're going to be sitting in that seat for that long, it really builds to it once you're in there. And then that first hour passes, and that second hour passes, and everything's the same. Yeah, like, I think the first hour is fine, because you're still kind of, like, getting settled. You're looking out the window, you're like, you know, you're still in the area going down, so, like... You see things that you, you know that you are used to, that places that you've been to, stuff like that. You know, once you, you you're going down through Jersey, you cross the Delaware over there. You know, through Trenton, it's like, oh wow, there's Arm and Hammer Stadium with the with the Trenton Thunder, and <laughs> that's right, yeah. I know this spot over here, and I know this place over there, and you know, once you get to Philly and and you get past there, then I think it starts to get like. Yeah. Now my ass is starting to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's like a flip a switch too with the train because um, if you remember, there's that spot where they have to change the caboose of the train. They have to swap it out for a different engine. Right. Once you get to Washington D.C., anything south is a diesel engine, whereas everything north of D.C. it's a an electric engine. Well, so yeah, there was a, a bit right. of a layover there at D.C. And I, I, once you hit that, it's it's that moment like everything past there is either rural or desolate or just completely unrecognizable. Your your uh, the train tracks wind up going through so many different roads that you wind up seeing a lot of people in traffic just sitting there staring at you, waiting to go by. <laughs> yeah, and he, all the stuff north of DC, the Northeast Corridor route. You know, for any anyone that takes trains regularly, that route it's definitely more isolated than it is down there. Once you get further south, it's, like, through people's yards, literally. Yeah. Yeah, that that was pretty cool. And over a lot of bridges. Because of all the different bodies of water that you passed through, there was a lot of thin bridges that were kind of interesting. They yeah, the... the out, like, kind of take it in stride. Um, in Maryland and, and, like, the Chesapeake Bay area. There's a whole... And Delaware, I think, also. Like, you're right on the water, Right on the, I don't think it's the Atlantic Ocean, but I think it's, I think it's just the, the Chesapeake Bay and you're like right there. And yeah. Nice. It, it is scenic. It is. It was. It, it was actually really nice. Um, I, 
the downside of riding the train was really only the fact that it was so long. Because it would have been nice otherwise, but when you have to, like, use the bathroom for the next 13 hours, when you get bored as living hell for 13 hours, you start listening in everybody's conversations. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, I now know about the lady in front of me's family problems because... Oh, I remember her, yeah. I do. <laughs> One thing, though, that we did over here was a guy talking about that Amtrak website, app, whatever, that tracks trains, which is really, actually proves extremely useful. Yeah, that guy, you see, so, I mean, it's a little bit of a sense of community in there, I guess, yeah. Even on the way back down, there was, you start to know the people on your train for the next 12 hours, you know. It's not quite like a plane where you sit there, you leave. (laughs) And that app actually was pretty eye-opening i think because a it saved us because coming back home the train was late and we knew that so we didn't have to sit at the station at like 3 30 4 a.m for extra time but it also tracks like the the location and speed and everything of the trains and i did not realize that amtrak trains go as fast as as they can go i always thought that amtrak trains you know 65, 75 or so is like the max that you're going to get, but on on non-Acela trains, because I know the Acela Express, it does go fast, but I mean, when we were up north here, and don't know exactly where it was that we were, I think it was either between Baltimore and Pittsburgh, or Pittsburgh and like Trenton over there somewhere, but in that, in, in the near up here range. I was checking the train because I was like, wow, it feels like we're going fast. And the train was going like 110 miles an hour. I didn't yeah. realize that that was possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, considering their weight, that's incredible. Yeah. I see my soda is like shaking a little bit more than normal. I'm just like, hmm. I got a little freaked out every time someone opened the doors to pass between trains. Because that night in particular, it was raining like crazy. And it would just make these awful noises. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> intimidating. Uh, but worth it, because once you get to Columbia, it's such a sense of relief. Like, you get off the train, and it's, it's beautiful. It is definitely, like, a nice feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember that uh, as soon as we got off, it happened to be a weird hour, so it was just quiet. It was, you know, in a rural place, when you get off somewhere at, like, 1 a.m., there's nobody out. No. Yeah. I think it was 3 or 3.30 that we got there, because I remember I had to text the Airbnb host that we had, and I felt bad waking him up because it was like a a gated thing that he had to buzz us in before we got the keys. But, yeah, it was literally in the middle of the night. And it was was a pretty nice area that I think we stayed in. Um, It was either – I mean, I couldn't – I don't remember. I was looking up on Wikipedia. It was either called the Vista or Arsenal Hill, one of those two. Arsenal Hill. But it was it, – I, it's uh, – I think it's like one of the more up-and-coming kind of maybe not hipstery areas, but it's definitely one of those more up-and-coming places. It's like the perfect blend of like residential area and entertainment area. Yeah, that's a good point. They, it seems like uh, the area developed the entire hipster side by the water. There's this really scenic park along mm-hmm. rivers. It's a really beautiful area. And then the side that we were staying on was kind of like the juxtaposition. It was the other side of the tracks. It was the uh, kind of homelessness in the park areas. And uh, it was supposedly right next to the mayor's uh, mansion, I think, right? So Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, or the governor's mansion. Governor's mansion. There you go. Um, it is so, a, that is a strange juxtaposition, though. Yeah, yeah. They, they do have another side of the tracks feeling there. But it's not so negative that you would – 
really you only notice because of how nice the hipstery area is the gentrified feeling of that other side that makes it feel different because otherwise it's got a really homey southern feeling in that whole town yeah i didn't really like i think everything for the most part in the area that we were at aside for just that covenant of governor the the arsenal hill governor's area everything was kind of more modern but then you know over there i guess as you go further I think from where we were, that was more north and east. So I guess the further you go that way, the kind of older things get. And yeah. you have some of the more southern architecture, you know, stereotypical you know, plantation architecture with the big uh, pillars in the front of the houses and things like that. Right. And that was also where Segra Park was located in that direction. The area. It was also where the uh, largest fire hydrant uh, in America is located. <laughs> the stupidest world record in the world. Uh, I mean, don't go to the fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope the, you know, the Bureau of Tourism of Columbia doesn't come after us here, but <laughs> it wasn't worth it. Not that, you know, you would think that the largest fire hydrant in America would be worth it, but I was expecting something bigger, I guess. Yeah, it's just when you think about the world's largest fire hydrant, you got to remember that there's no reason to have other giant fire hydrants. Yeah, I mean that's also that that's also a good point. I mean the normal a normal sized fire hydrant is like the size of you know maybe two feet or so, like the size of like a hamper, like a clothes hamper. Yeah, and you don't really need to be that much bigger to be the world's largest one. Exactly. I mean, it was maybe ten, fifteen feet tall. Right. Which is a big fire hydrant, I'll give him that. But yeah, yeah. I guess I had my expectations uh, a little high. Right. If you're gonna visit it, temper them. Understand yeah. what it is before you do it. <laughs> um, but honestly, the place really it feel, felt like a great vacation place because of the food, because of the scenes, because of the different parks you could walk. It was actually very bustling during the day. Stuff got really cool. It was really hot out, but everybody was out jogging this trail. Oh, jeez, the heat. Yeah. Um, and we actually started using bikes, if you remember. Uh, we started biking along that river. Right. They have, like, a kind of like a city bank program down there. I think it was Blue Bike. Blue Bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really easy to use, and that was that was wonderful. It was better. Yeah, than I mean, I wish that I realized how easy and accessible and everything that was earlier in, in our trip, because... Not that, you know, at where we were staying, it wasn't too far from Segar Park, but $5 Ubers back and forth, you know, it adds up after a couple of days. And for half the price, I could have, you know, biked and parked the bike right there in front of the stadium and, you know, gotten a little exercise, which can't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> they have these really big hills that made it kind of refreshing to bike over them once you made it up the hill. Yeah, um, like we were saying, we were staying in the Arsenal Hill area, and it is a legit hill. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Governor. Could not bike up that one. No, no. But, yeah, that park that we were talking about, it was right alongside the Congaree, Congaree River, and it, it was just, it was, like, super scenic. It was really nice. Yeah, it was so amazing. And it really was a long trail. We didn't even get to the end. Yeah, like, I, I legit had to stop because I ran out of water, I was getting tired, I was getting hot, but it kept going. Yeah, it really and did. We probably biked about five miles. Easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's great. It, it's funny because 
there aren't too many towns that you could just kind of randomly pick out and say, I want to go there. But Columbia actually does give you stuff to do for that week. Being yeah. able to see the games was amazing. If I remember correctly, they actually had some great specials, too, that were part of drawing people in. Um, something like buy one beer, get the second one free, something like that. They had, they had a lot of deals going on. So for a kind of smaller team, they treated themselves with a lot of respect. They held themselves to a high standard in the stadium. Yeah, I mean, it's a brand new stadium. It was built in 26, well, it wasn't built, but the first year was 2016. So ah. it's less than five years old. I don't remember the exact date, but this year they drew their millionth fan. So <laughs> it is, you know, uh, it is, it is a, a good baseball scene. Um, the stadium itself, you know, since it's new, the bathrooms are good. You know, the amenities are fine. I got to call out the people of Columbia, though, a little bit, because at no point really where the stadium's, like, packed, which is a little not weird because most of the games that I went to were, you know, during the week. But it was definitely a lot emptier than I thought it would be as compared to, like, the Cyclones, you know, when – you know, sometimes is you know, you can't even move up a row or two because yeah. you want to, you know? And it's funny because Columbia was very specific about their seating, even though no one was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember talking one of the games that I was at. I was just kind of – I'm not a very social person, but the guy next to me, he just kind of started talking. He saw I was taking pictures, writing stuff down. So he was, you know, just kind of asking what I was doing, and I was talking with him. And – he was saying how he has season tickets um, to 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 the Fireflies. They were pretty good seats. I was sitting behind home plate, basically. So he had season tickets behind home plate. And he said it was the first game that he went to that week. I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday game. So obviously there had been a few. And he said that he didn't really go to games too often. And I don't know. It, it's just such a weird thing, like... To me, I mean, maybe I'm not the best person to judge this because I'm a baseball diehard fanatic, whatever. But, like, if you have such a nice stadium and you have season a season ticket, so obviously you want to go to a lot of games and it's a nice weather out and whatever else, like, use that more, dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a matter of, like, to the people who actually live there, this is just sort of a sideshow. This is a thing that, as I feel like going, you know. And yeah, I mean, it's just like I'm not gonna. I don't go to every single Staten Island Yankee game. I don't go to every single Brooklyn Cyclones game. Right. And when I had Nets season tickets, even I remember missing like one out of every four games, you know, because it's yeah, just, it just happens. Just life. But the thing is, is that they were always empty during the week, anyway. So, yeah. I got to acknowledge that what you're saying is still true. The The mentality wasn't exactly passionate, but maybe that's because they're new. Maybe that town is kind of developing still. We saw the hipster side being built. You know, it's it's probably something that will grow over the next 10 years. Yeah, I mean, if you give them time, I know that they're redeveloping that whole area. I want to say that it's called Broad Street or Bull Street or something to that effect, but I know they're doing a whole renovation of that area. All of the streets around the stadium are being redone and, and are under construction. There's a, an abandoned 
I want to say it was a hospital or an asylum or something like literally right next door to the stadium, which is kind of a funny, funny uh, to see. But I know eventually they're going to tear that down and, and build more entertainment kind of stuff. And they're just redoing that whole area. And I guess that, you know, a baseball stadium is a good central anchor for that kind of stuff. Yeah, it really was, especially because of those buildings. And you're right. Like that whole area will become beautiful. I could, wouldn't be shocked if they put some businesses, some restaurants, something to kind of give it time. Give it time. You're right. When we and, come back in another two, three years, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also another thing about the city is that it, it's weird when you have a major sporting, um, organization, you know, the Columbia Fireflies, not being the central focus sports-wise of your city. As a New Yorker, look, as a New Yorker looking at other cities, I kind of as not looking down on them, but like obviously we have major league clubs here, so the Cyclones, the Silent Yankees, they're not the main focus. You know, you have the Mets, you have the Yankees, the Rangers, uh, Nets, Knicks, everybody. You have major league okay, clubs. I what you're getting at here that like. This is their team. They, right. This is their I, I feel like other cities that have, like, they don't have major league teams, but they have a minor league team, you'd think that there'd be more focus on that. And Columbia is not one of those places because, you know, SCU is located there, um, South Carolina University, and that, you know, is such a big draw. It's one of those weird things where the, your college sports outshine your your professional sports. Right, right. Weird. Wow. But, yeah, I mean, give it more time, I guess. You know, they've been there for only a couple of years. They're developing the area. Maybe the the Fireflies will have a bigger presence in the city. I actually, yeah, absolutely, because if it's only been five years, for example, those players at SCU, their dream is to ultimately make it to teams like the Fireflies and then the Major Leagues, right? So mm-hmm. Exactly. They're going to be coming to those games. They're going to be creating a culture of baseball. So, that is a really good sign that you're noticing. Maybe right now they kind of compete for a little bit of the town's attention, but as they start to blend together, there'll be a symbiotic relationship. They'll be yeah, as, as you start getting more guys drafted from the school or from uh, you know maybe local areas that are being assigned to Columbia, you'll probably start seeing a, a more of an uptick in attendance. And exactly. not that they, not that they have attendance problems, but you know. Well, no. I, I mean, they still had people in the stands. I guess we shouldn't. I shouldn't suggest that they were like desolate. But right. Maybe the city will embrace them more when there's more sons of the city playing for them. Yeah, exactly. Because they had really cool branding. They had a really cool stadium. I love that little firefly that they had. That's one of the cooler hats for the minor yeah. league. Yeah. And it glows <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> no, it got it glows in the dark. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great. Oh man, that's awesome. Uh, the well, way that the way that I have my room set up is I have little pegs on the wall and I hang up all of my hats, minor league teams, on them. And I have my Columbia one specifically right above my desk lamp because then when I shut it off and the and the room is dark, it glows. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. They they were truly on top of their stuff, and I can't wait for that to be the center of the team. Like. Really, Columbia will embrace it. I, I know it for a fact now. The more and more we talk, I can't wait. <laughs> now, I got to ask you, do you remember seeing any fireflies while we were there? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't either when I, I was thinking of that's such a weirdest thing. We were out at night a bunch of times. I did not see one firefly. But nope. I believe them, though. I believe oh, yeah. 
We saw a bunch of nasty centipede kind of things, though. Oh, yeah. When we were coming, when we got off the train and we were just kind of walking over an uh, an overpass. And it was, you know, how how overpasses are that go over tracks. It's kind of wooded to keep the dirt and the smells and the noise and whatever down. I have no clue what these bugs were. They looked like centipedes, but they were just (laughs) all over the concrete. It's like they fell out of the trees. I don't know what they're called either, but I think I am glad that they went with fireflies over millipedes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting logo, though. Actually, that would be a cool logo. I could see it. It's, it has a, a bunch of legs, and it's curled up like an S, and it's holding a baseball bat <laughs> in its front couple of legs. Or it's holding multiple baseball bats, and it's right, like, right, right, right. go. <laughs> it's holding a thousand bats. There are marketing opportunities there, but yeah, I think that the firefly <laughs> is uh, better. Uh, right. And plus, it's kind of a cool name. I mean, Firefly is just aesthetically pleasing to say. <laughs> yeah. And and um, this season, MLB had a kind of Latin American outreach thing where every team adopted, you know, a different kind of Latin American themed uh, logo and name and everything like that. Right. And the one that Colombia had for this year were the Chicharrones. And hey, Chicharron... Hey, hey, hey. Is kind of like a, a it's a Spanish pork dish. Yo, that's I, I can't believe they did. Why didn't we go on Chicharrones Day, man? That's my day. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have any. They did the the days where they wore those uniforms were specific days throughout the year. None of which when we were there. Man, but Rude. the logo for that team is just basically a pig, um, and it shows like the pig's outline, and on dotted areas of the pig are like the different cuts of meat that you get from a pig. Right. And obviously, you know, barbecue pork is a big thing. Oh. And the food down there, the barbecue was excellent. Oh, my God. I, I wish we had a list of the places we went to for you guys, but you'll have to figure that out on your own because that was also part of the journey. Just go to uh, all of them. <laughs> like, honestly, you won't get wrong, go wrong no matter where you pick. But, oh, man, some places... Some places took it to the extreme. There was, I mean, they also had really great, like, breakfast diners and stuff. I forgot the name. Lizard, Lizard something, Lizard Thicket, whatever. They were one of the most amazing down south kind of breakfast places. But, yo, you start looking around for pulled pork and you find, uh, I I don't know how to share that with you guys. You have to go eat it. And it's not like, I'm not rich. You're not rich. We weren't going to these extravagant places. Like, we were just going to, like moderate you know regular regular places and just i never knew that it's like south carolina barbecue sauce mustard based stuff existed and it really has changed my life <laughs> yeah <laughs> i didn't know either you had to explain it to me and i i think it's changed mine too yeah it just i've i've since bought some you know just going shopping at the supermarket and getting just the, whatever the brand was that I have, but it is, it doesn't really hold much to like some of the homemade sources that they have down there. But yeah. if I no one is, if you, I actually wound up ordering both a platter of barbecue pork and a sandwich at the same yeah. meal to go <laughs> just slather them in the sauce. I gained 10 pounds that day and it was worth it. <laughs> it definitely was worth it. The food is just, and, and also, you mentioned breakfast before, like the, I love the gravy and biscuits, 
Mm. And they had, you know, I always get that whenever I go to uh, Cracker Barrel, because I guess that's the kind of closest southern kind of real southern food here up here. But that's not really that real, but it's still good, whatever. But it was legit, you know, like southern Oh, yeah. Biscuits and gravy breakfast, and it was just so good. So good. Uh, that place, I mean, I wish we went there every morning. <laughs> they yeah, were it's like it's like you have to properly partition the amount of sleep, when you're going to be getting up, what meals you could have to just experience everything because you just want all of it. Yeah, I mean, and would be the best way to experience Colombia with the games as, like, your entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, neither one of us are particularly fat. No. I, and just, like, yeah, just the food, we just want more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, uh, I I gorged. I gorged. Mm-hmm. I, um, that, I don't know. That city just, it had a great personality. Everything made you feel a, a down-home feel. It, it, the southern kind of cliches that come with being in those states, they were true. They yeah, were true. I was just walking down the block and... Just random person would be like, hey, how are y'all doing? Like, kind of weird, but okay. Like, that's what, <laughs> yeah. that's what they do, I guess. I'm great. How are you? Right? Like, like just, yeah. I don't know. It, it was very simple. I remember at the bar, we went to one of these bars, one of the only ones that was open at, like, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. kind of place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you remember, you mentioned they might have been popular. I, I don't know if they're famous or not. But as we were there... The vibe was so chill in the room. Even when people were trashed, it was a good time trashed. And, hey, can you watch my wallet for me, buddy? Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Why'd you just leave your wallet here? I don't know, but he knows we're going to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, the the guy went to steal it. He went to the bathroom. He didn't want the bartender to think that he was skipping out or anything like that. And he asked us to two legit strangers. We weren't even sitting like right next to him. He was like a couple of seats over at the bar to watch his wallet, and he just left it there. And like, we did, oh. and he knew it was like that's the kind of this is that um, we don't lock our doors town. I, and I get it now. I do. Yeah. I get it. I mean, I being from New York, you being from New York, I'm way too paranoid to ever live that life. <laughs> right? Would you ever Boy. leave your wallet? On the bar and just be like asking some random strangers, like, "Hey, could you watch this?" Right, right. I would never. But oh man, I really appreciate that he feels so free. He can. (laughs) Like, I would die to have that kind of blissful uh, trust in my society. Um, I, I think that I that was one of the main points about Columbia that helped make it such a good time which is that even when we were doing mundane things, the people around us were very, very kind. It's interesting because since we talked about uh, Pulowski and uh, Kingsport in the past, when I think about how Columbia felt compared to those places, I think I actually prefer Columbia. Columbia yeah, Columbia is going for it. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, obviously it's the capital of South Carolina, so you have that aspect of it, whereas Kingsport is just a random little city or town, whatever the classification is in northern Tennessee. And Pulaski is, again, same thing, just a little city town in in, in the mountains in Virginia. But Columbia is definitely, it felt like it was a living place, um, you know, where there is just always stuff to do. There's always people around. Whereas Kingsport didn't feel, it felt like that a little bit. 
Yeah. Whereas Pulaski didn't feel like that at all. Pulaski just kind of felt like it was just like a little place frozen in time. If that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I, I that feeling. Basically, I guess this is what makes the baseball touring of the country so amazing, which is that you get to feel a lot of different feelings. You get to see a lot of different people. You get to you really get a scope for how communities form their culture and how they they give you that vibe. Columbia's culture was just cool. It had that southern homey feel. Pulaski was a little different. Still had they all had that southern homey feel in some degree. But it was different. It was a different feeling. I remember at one point we were in Kingsport, and we went to go eat at the infamous Hardee's. <laughs> uh, don't go to Hardee's, guys. Um, and uh, Actually, excuse me. I'm sorry. I got that wrong. It was right before we – it was after we ate at Hardee's. We were like, we need to find a good place. So I don't remember exactly where we went. I'm sorry. But it was such a good burger. And as we're eating, the guy, the manager himself, the one who I think owns this joint, comes up to us to just be like, hey, are you guys from, from around here? You seem to be like uh, city boys. And strikes up a conversation with us for like five minutes. You know, not, not an uncomfortable amount of time. He didn't like hang out at the table. But he took a few minutes to learn about who we are because they're so insulated that they could tell we weren't from there very instantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's He saw I was wearing a Cape May shirt, so he asked if I was from Cape May. And then it turned out that he was from, like, Monmouth County, Jersey, or uh, Essex, I think, is the one above it. Just He he was from this area, which is, like, of all the random places to meet yeah. another guy from the area. We meet him in Kingsport, Tennessee. Right? And and he knew, he just, even the people around us, I remember that there was a certain fascination, you know, they, not like, they weren't being idle, we weren't idle, I, I don't think it was all, like, putting us on a pedestal, alright, but they they just had this feeling of like, ooh, someone knew, that's cool. <laughs> right, it's, it's one of those things where you're just like, you go down there, she's like, hey, I want to order a coffee, it's like, oh, y'all from New York? She's <laughs> like, I want a coffee? Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly one of those kinds of things right uh i remember I, I i gave it away when i was like oh this is my first time having whatever this is and anyway i just i would recommend that if you are a diehard mets fan or a diehard minor league person i mean i was grateful that you brought me there and i think everybody should follow suit and give columbia a shot yep it's a nice city this like we were saying, there's stuff to do for if you're with a family, there's stuff to do if you're alone, there's stuff to do with a small group, whatever, aside for just baseball. And then the baseball, obviously, maybe not the quality on the field because, as we spoke about earlier, Columbia is maybe not the best team this year. But yeah. it, uh, it'll give you a good exp- – the, the experience will be enjoyable even if the, the play on the team uh, – the play on the field is not necessarily <laughs> – yeah, I, I got to acknowledge that the Mets can help themselves out by putting some more talent over there. Cause, uh, yeah, well. Yeah. But it, they will. They ultimately will. I think you were mentioning that they're going to restructure the miners now. And so yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. All right. If that goes down, I think Columbia stands to gain because they're good enough, new enough, important enough that they'll get a little bit of the boost that the other teams that have been cut have. Yep, I I agree. It is it's a new enough team, new enough stadium, new everything that they wouldn't lose them in the shuffle if things change. Not at all. Yeah, and, and Columbia, Brooklyn, we've 
I'm proud of the Mets minor league organizations, especially now that I got to see them. They were non-existent before I got to see them, and now they're so. I have a huge respect for the way that they run most of most of their divisions. Yep. All right. Well, Mike, thank you for joining me again. Of course. Um. Yep. So Columbia gets a gets a thumbs up from the Cypher Brothers. All right. Well, any uh, last words for the week? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if anyone has any questions, comments, whatever, you could email us at our email address from complex to queens at gmail.com. You could follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I'm at Steve Seiple. Lucas is at Elvlahos343. And Ken is at EdKenLavin91. And then, of course, subscribe to our, our podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Rate and review them, and obviously, thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with a recap of the St. Lucie Mets. And until then, love the Mets, love the Mets. <laughs>